just, I love the fact that even if you've got little ones too young to send out to a group, that actually you can still be in here with us and have your children with you. Um, that's one of the things I love about this space, that there's room for you to do that and enjoy that. So guys, well done for being here with little tiny ones, because it's difficult, isn't it? Like we've been through that phase as a family, and sometimes it's really hard to have babies and toddlers um, in a church service. And so I just want to commend you for coming and being here and modeling something to your children about the importance of gathering with God's people, because it is important, and it's all going in right from early days. So well done. Cool. Well, we are going to carry on in a series we started last week uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a series we've titled Gifted, and then with a subtitle which I think hopefully communicates more than the main title, which says, What Have You Received for the Common Good? And it's a series uh, in three chapters of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by a first century Christian leader called Paul to a group of Christians, a church in a place called Corinth. It was a church that Paul had planted, a church of people that he knew well and he loved dearly. And he wrote two letters to them, letters addressing issues in the church, letters that were intended to help them to follow God and to grow to a place of health as a church community. Uh, letters written out of a real deep care and concern for their growth and maturity and flourishing as, as people, as Christians, and as a church community together. And in the kindness of God, we have those letters in the Bible. So they were for the Corinthians good, and in the kindness of God, we have them today for our good as well, that we might just as the Corinthians were, be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, that we might understand what it looks like to grow up, to live as mature, godly people and as a community in this day and age. And so we're going to read from chapter 13 today. These chapters 12, 13, and 14, in the middle of this first letter... Paul addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. And he begins chapter 12 by saying to the Corinthians, and in turn to us, I do not want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. Remember, this is a group of Christians who Paul loves. He says to them, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. And we don't want to be uninformed or ignorant either. Since God has given gifts, we'd be crazy to remain ignorant to them, wouldn't we? Like if God has actually given gifts to people, to be uninformed about them would be just stupid, wouldn't it? Like we want to be informed. We don't want to ignore them. And we'd also be crazy if God has given gifts to his people to think that the Bible, his word, doesn't have something to say about them, about what they are and how we might use them. And so that's why we're in this series. We began last week in chapter 12, 
And Paul gives a general introduction in chapter 12. If you weren't here, you can catch up online. I'd encourage you to do so. But just very quickly for your benefit now, Paul gives a general introduction to the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12. He's at pains in that introduction to ensure that we understand a number of things. Firstly, that the gifts are given by God for his glory. The gifts glorify God. That's the first thing we need to know. And that they're given by him. The second thing we find in chapter 12 that we need to understand is that there are loads and loads of different types of gifts. And that God has given those gifts to you lot. To people. To his people. To the church. And we read in chapter 12 that he's given them, it says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul was at pains in chapter 12 to help us understand that you're not gifted by God for your good solely, or so that you go, how amazing am I? (laughs) But you're gifted for the common good, to bless others. And then Paul continued in chapter 12 to help us see the church as a body where each of us brings something different, and part of that being the gifts that God's given us. And when each plays their part, we grow up strong and mature and healthy together. But we need the eyes and ears and big toes and pinky fingers in order to be healthy. We miss one bit. If one of you is missing, we feel it as a body. In chapter 14, Paul is going to go on to give some very specific instructions about the use of a couple of gifts in the church. So he's introduced it all in chapter 12. In chapter 14, he's going to get really practical on what it actually looks like to use some of these gifts when we gather as a church community. But in chapter 13, Paul kind of sandwiched between these two very practical chapters, makes a bit of a gear shift. And instead of looking at the the how of the gifts, Paul wants to address the heart. The heart in which we should use our gifts. In chapter 12, right at the end of it, you'll remember he said, eagerly desire the gifts. And then he flows straight on in chapter 12, with that ringing in our ears that we're supposed to desire the gifts, he wants us to understand that there's something fundamental, something foundational that we can't just skip over in our desire to have the gifts or use the gifts. And that thing is love. And these verses, whether you knew they were from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or not, are very well-known verses. In fact, it's it's one of the most popular and famous passages in the entire Bible. There are some chapters of Scripture, and lots actually in 1 Corinthians, that we read and they kind of make make us wince a bit. And we go, oh, that's, that's hard to read. That feels a bit unpalatable. That's maybe even offensive to us in some way. And we have to wrestle through those things. But these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 are not like that. They seem to have a a universal approval rating, like everybody reads them and goes, yeah. (laughs) They're often read at weddings, weddings of of Christians and non-Christians alike. And 
And clearly, these verses about love do have something to speak into the context of a husband and wife and how they are to treat one another. But actually, that's not the context they were written into. Remember, we've just said. It's a letter written by Paul to a church, and it's in the middle of a block of teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. And so that's the context we find this teaching on love. And it's so important because the Corinthians actually understood Paul's encouragement to desire the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, they didn't need any encouragement to desire the gifts. When you read the rest of Paul's writing to them and you understand the church history and the context, they were not experiencing a lack of desire for the gifts or a lack of use of the gifts when they gathered together. But what was going on was that I had a tendency to desire certain gifts and overlook the others. Because they perceived certain gifts to be more impressive and more important. That's why Paul's teaching on the body that we read last week was so important. The Corinthians had got into arguments about Who was the most important? Who was the most impressive? Who was the most spiritual? Who was the most eloquent, the most generous? They were using the gifts and desiring the gifts to make themselves look good, to elevate themselves and their status within the community, that people would look at them and go, wow, you're so spiritual. That's so profound. It become about one-upmanship and pride. They were using the gifts to their own ends. And Paul knew that. He knew them. But I think he also knew the predisposition of the human heart. And if we're honest, what we can also often struggle with in wanting to be well thought of and respected by others. And understanding that Paul writes into that context. Before we get to the how, in chapter 14, he addresses the heart here in 13. Having just instructed them to desire the gifts, Paul goes on to teach them about love, which might, at first, when we read it, seem unrelated. You might be like, what's that got to do with the gifts of the Spirit? But as we go through, I trust that you'll see the link. And I trust that you'll see it's absolutely essential that we grasp this if we're to use these gifts in a way that's healthy and glorifying to God. So we're going to do, as we often do, we're going to read a short section and then we'll pause, unpack that section, then read on, so on and so forth. So if you do have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have one, it will come up on the screen. So you can read along there. But I I do want to encourage you. I say this often. I want to say it again. Bring a Bible. Open a Bible. Get it on your phone. Read it for yourself too. Don't just take it for granted that what I put up on the screen is actually what it says in Scripture. Like It's good habit. Don't, Don't just take my word for it. Read it for yourself. Okay, we read from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Paul writes this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, 
but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I am nothing. Paul straight away addresses the issue for the Corinthians. He talks about speech. It's that. He talks about, come on, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I'm impressive with language, I've got this incredible gifting and ability to speak eloquently or to speak actually in, in the tongues of Men and angels, like spontaneously, I can do that without even having to have learnt it, gifted by God. I can speak in other languages. Impressive speech. The Corinthians were enamored with impressive speech. But have not love. I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries of knowledge. Again, impressive. Wouldn't it be impressive? If you had that, possessed that, these are things that people look at and think, wow, you have all knowledge. The Corinthians prized knowledge, prized the ability to have this kind of impressive, insightful, prophetic speech. He addresses faith. If I had all faith and I could literally remove mountains, but have not love. And their actions charitable, if I, if I gave everything I had to the poor, if I delivered my body over, sacrificed my very being, myself, for other people, but, but actually had no love, it's worthless. It's without value. It's a waste. Paul's saying, guys, on the surface, as far as people look in on your life, you could be absolutely smashing it out of the park. Like You could be the model Christian, Sat here today, you could, like, you could be the most impressive, eloquent Bible teacher. You could be giving away huge sums to charities and organizations. I mean, you might have just given away more than some people earn in a year to Ukraine. Like, you could be doing all of those things. You could be the most gifted person going and appear the most spiritual and sacrificial. But if it's not motivated and underpinned by love, Paul says, it's useless. In fact, actually, it's worse than useless. It's ugly, and it's jarring, and it's an abuse of the gifts that God's given. What we understand from these verses is that there is a way of using the gifts that God gives that actually causes harm to yourself and to others, ultimately. And that is to use them selfishly, without love for others. The Corinthians were desiring the gifts they thought would make them look good in front of other people. And they were using the gifts to that end as well, to look good in front of other people. Like, that happens more obviously with some gifts than others, right? So gifts where you stand up in front of a group of people, I think you have to be particularly cautious and aware of, of your heart in that. Because 
it's very easy to do something like that and for your motive to become about being impressive or looking good in front of other people. But I think actually when we drill down into it, you can do it with almost any gift that God gives you. Even hospitality or generosity can at times become twisted and motivated by a desire to be approved of or thought well of by other people. I think all of us, if we're honest, know that at times we get to a place where actually we want to sound good and look good and be well thought of and respected by other people. And we use the gifts God's given us to that end. We can take the gifts that God has given us for the common good, for for the benefit of other people, and we can use them instead for our own ends. We turn them in on ourselves and use them. And when we do that, what's the fruit? What does that yield in our own hearts, in a community, in a group of people? What do you think? Rivalry, envy, boasting, pride, That's the fruit. When we take the gifts God's given us for the good of others and we use them to our own ends, the fruit of that is ugly. It causes division in communities. Instead of unity and mutual edification, which is the purpose of the gifts, instead of mutual building up and encouraging and strengthening. We end up with division, dysfunction and brokenness. And tragically, you don't have to look too far to see this in society, do you? And even more tragically, you don't have to look too far often to see it in the church. We're going to go on to read to see that Paul emphatically states an answer to this, though. Love. Love is the answer, but not love as we might define it. Instead, perfect love, as God defines it. And so we read on from verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. See, it doesn't have the hallmarks of when we use the gifts to our own ends. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is real love. As God defines it, as God designed it to be, as God demonstrated to be. This is the heart that's supposed to drive our actions and decisions. We're going to unpack this a bit more fully in a moment, but this is the love that's displayed perfectly by Jesus and and we're invited into. See, I think I've heard people encourage Christians to read their name into that in place of the word love. As, as a kind of like, this is how I'm supposed to be. 
And so people read it and they're kind of like, yes, Owen is patient. Owen is... And, but you can't read that with any conviction, can you? If you're honest. You try it with your name and it catches in your throat because you know it's not true. Not all the time anyway. But this is the great and glorious truth, is that actually we can comfortably and reliably put the name of Christ there. We can say Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus loves. Uh, Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now that could, if you read it the wrong way, sound slightly heretical in places. Jesus obviously doesn't believe all things. He's like, That's not what that sentence means anyway. <laughs> um, it's not saying all things are equally true. Um, but you get the point. This is the heart that Jesus displayed and the heart that we are called to reflect in our lives towards others as we use the gifts. And just imagine, imagine how different things would be if we lived in that way. If we could really live that out. Like imagine the impact that the gifts you have been given by God would have on those around you if you used them in that way. With that heart, with that foundation. It would be incredible, wouldn't it? Imagine what this community would look like if those were the things that marked us out as people. You wouldn't be able to keep people away. Because I think that kind of love is attractive. It's compelling. Because it's not what we see so often. Paul doesn't stop there either. He carries on because he wants to be really clear with us that it doesn't matter how gifted you are, it pales into insignificance with the enduring power of the love of God. We read on, continuing about love from verse 8. We read this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul, having encouraged us to desire the gifts, having acknowledged that God has gifted you, he wants us to understand that our gifts however impressive they might appear, one day will be gone. If you pin your identity or your hope in how eloquent you are or how well thought of you are because of 
the way you use a gift God has given you, then you're not placing it in something enduring, you're placing it in something that will have an end. But love, God's love, real love, will not end. It is a secure and firm place for us to rest our hope because it endures. Now, we're going to dig down to it in a minute, but just before we do, we need to address something that comes up in these verses. Because we read this and we think, love never ends. Yes, good. And then we read that, as for prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part, prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And through the generations, some people have used this passage to do a couple of things. Firstly, they've used this passage to to downplay the importance of the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And to say, well, they're not really that important because they're not going to last anyway. The other thing people have done with this is to say, actually, we think they've ceased already. They've stopped. They're not for today. They were when Paul wrote this, but Paul was envisaging a future that we are in now where prophecy has stopped, tongues has stopped, and we shouldn't expect to see those kind of gifts in the church today because they've stopped. Paul said it was going to happen. It's happened. Here we are. And they reason that by saying that, that the way they read Scripture here is to say, that these things are partial, they're partial revelations of, of God's heart for his people and God's word to his people. And, and Paul says that here, yeah? We, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see in part. And he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And people will read that and say, well, the Bible. The Bible is the perfect final authoritative revelation of God's word for his people. And I'd say, amen. Yes, the Bible is that. And so they'd say, well, the perfect word has come, and therefore these partial revelations have passed away. We don't need them anymore. So once the canon of Scripture is complete, there are no more tongues and prophecy. There are a few problems with that. Like, namely, that those gifts have continued to operate throughout the history of the church, um, even after the canon of Scripture is completed. And secondly, I don't think it allows for a consistent reading of what Paul writes in this passage. So I, I can see where they're coming from, but I disagree with them. I think these gifts are for the church today are given for the building up and strengthening of God's people. And the main reason being that when Paul writes about the perfect coming, I think he's writing about Jesus' return in glory to make all things new, to restore the heavens and the earth as a new creation, to dwell with his people forever, perfectly, face to face. And at least part of the reason I think that is that Paul goes on in the same thread and the same piece of text in verse 12 
to say, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when, when the perfect comes, then face to face. That's, that's the hope we have. That now we, we have like a, a dim, partial view of the glory of God and the person of Jesus. We, we understand from Scripture what he's like and who he is. And, and tongues and prophecy and other gifts help reveal something of the heart of God to us to help us understand what he's like. But it's like looking in a, in a like battered, tarnished mirror that the image is not clear. It, it's still amazing. <laughs> yeah, what I understand of God through the revelation in Scripture is enough to completely captivate my heart. As, as dim as that view in the mirror is, it's, it's enough to cause me to go, wow, God, you're amazing. But then, we will see face to face. This is our hope. But now, we know in part. But then, we will know fully, as we're fully known by him. And so, one day, we won't need these gifts anymore. But that day isn't today, because we're not seeing him face to face. When Christ returns, these things will pass, but that's not yet. I think a helpful way to think about it is like this. Right now, the gifts that God has given are a bit like streetlights in the night that give us some kind of understanding of what he's like. They, they kind of shine some light on where we're going. They help us to know him and, and grow more like him. But when the dawn comes, when the sun rises, we don't need the streetlights anymore, do we? In fact, you can't even tell whether they're on or off when the sun's full up, can you? They're no longer useful. They pale compared to the radiant glory of the sun that warms us and allows us to see clearly. These gifts are good and they're useful for now, but they're not ultimate. He is. His love is. And he invites us into it. He's inviting you into it today. Into an experience of his love, to enjoy his love, to know the security of his love. And when we do experience and understand the love of God for us, something amazing happens. Something incredible happens. It frees us. It frees us to love others. It frees us to use the gifts that we've been given for the good of others, the way they were intended. You see, in relationships, in life, in love, we're looking for security. I'm sure you know that about yourself. And if you don't, I'd like to tell you. (laughs) Okay? This is a universal human experience. In the relationships that you are in, in your life, in love, you are looking for security. You are. 
the Shirelles posed the question in their 1960s hit. Will you still love me tomorrow? So I'd like to sing more of it, really. And if the answer to that is, it depends, if the answer to that question is, it depends, then we have no security, do we? We have no peace. In fact, we live on the edge. Have I done enough for their love? Have I done something that might drive them away from me? If their love for me tomorrow depends, then how can I have peace? It causes us to question, are we enough? Have we done enough? Have I done sufficient to look good in front of them, to impress them, to secure their affections for tomorrow? Or will it be gone tomorrow? But if the answer to that question, will you still love me tomorrow, is a sincere and resounding yes, now, tomorrow, the next day, the next year, and forever, then that is incredibly securing, isn't it? Love, true love, God's perfect love displayed ultimately in Jesus never ends. And so the answer, will you still love me tomorrow from Jesus, is a resounding yes. Yes, now and forever. And that brings incredible security to us. Because real love, the kind of love that isn't jealous or doesn't envy or doesn't boast, that is patient and kind and gentle and believes the best and hopes the best, that kind of love says this. says, I know you. I know everything about you. This is how God views you, by the way. And despite all your flaws and fears... I still want you near. I still want to draw you close. Love says, you are so precious to me that I would give everything I have for you. And nothing you could ever do would change my mind. I don't love you because of what I can get from you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. I would die for you. And this is precisely the kind of love we have in Christ Jesus, who not only says, I would die for you, but who says, I have died for you. This is incredibly releasing. When you come to Jesus, when you hope in him, you can know beyond doubt that the answer to that question, will you still love me tomorrow, is yes. You are loved. Before him you have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. As those who have experienced true love in Jesus, we have nothing to prove. What's the effect of that? Changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. If we're truly secure in the love of God, it changes everything about how we treat others, 
about how we use the gifts that we've been given. Because we're no longer seeking approval. (laughs) Because we're secure. We know we're loved. We're no longer looking for security because we have it in him. And so we're free to use the gifts he's given us for others. We're free to use the gifts in love because we're not trying to win approval or security from anyone. And the more we let that truth seep into our hearts, the more we allow the truth of the love of God towards us, displayed in Christ Jesus, to to sink into our hearts, the more we're able to use the gifts he's given us for the good of others. But let's be real, just for a minute, because we can be really honest. These ugly traits that we mentioned earlier, like rivalry, envy, pride, anger, they crop up in our hearts and lives more often than we'd like to admit, don't they? We can be proud and boastful, envious, impatient, rude, self-centered, irritable, resentful. Or at least if you can't, I can. I'm not proud of that fact, but I can. Even towards our husbands or wives, our children, let alone others, in the church. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we just try harder to be more loving? Like, oh no, I've just got to grip my teeth and I just need to be more loving. It doesn't work, does it? So what do we do? We admit our failures. We confess our shortcomings and our sin. We bring it to him. We find forgiveness. We receive his grace. We remind ourselves and remind one another of his great love for us that secures us and comforts us and frees us. We remember that our failure doesn't define us. He loves you. You need to know that today. God loves you. And out of his love for you, Jesus Christ came and he lived perfection in your place. Because he knew that you'd at times be envious and prideful and boasting and rude and impatient and self-centered. He knew that you would be those things at times. But he came and lived without an ounce of it in his life. Love personified at all times. Kind, patient, not boastful or arrogant or rude. And then out of love for you, he, he went to the cross. And he said that the death that you've earned for yourself in your rebellion against God, actually in your boasting and your pride and your rudeness 
and your impatience and your self-centeredness. I take that on myself. I want to be your substitute. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to die the death you deserve so that you might receive the life that I've earned. Staggering, isn't it? When we struggle with these things, we come back and we remember again what Christ has done for us. Even this week, I've had to live this out. I expect most of us, if we really think about it, have to live this out daily, right? But sometimes it feels more pronounced than other times. And I I found myself in a situation recently, in this last week, that was incredibly frustrating. And it was frustrating. But I didn't respond in love. In my frustration, I became angry. And And I spoke out of my anger to others. And afterwards, I was reminded, Jenny's so good for me in this, right? Because I talked to her about what happened. And she brings me back to Jesus and his great love for me, which is what I need. That's what we all need in those moments. And she reminded me of his grace towards me. That in his kindness, I've been forgiven. That instead of anger, he's poured out forgiveness. He's poured out grace and kindness in my life. The mistakes that those people had made that were frustrating, that caused me to respond in anger, were nothing compared to the sin I've committed against God in my life. Yet, because of Christ, he has loved me, forgiven me, And remembering that and bringing my sin to him, finding the joy of forgiveness again, I was able to make a sincere apology to the people I needed to apologize to, to make peace with them. I hope that many of you were encouraged by last Sunday as we talked about the gifts and the fact that each one of us has a part to play in this community. But we must play our parts for there to be health and life. And I hope that you were encouraged by the conversations you had in life groups this week. Will referred to that earlier as people encouraged one another and called out the gifts that they see in each other's lives. I trust that you feel emboldened to step out and use those gifts. But please, please don't miss this. See, we could be the most dynamic and gifted group of people going. But if we're not marked by love, then it's all in vain. See, I want to see more and more and more people stepping out and using the gifts God's given them. But more, I want to see 
genuine, wholehearted love and devotion to God and to one another in this church community. Because if we don't get that right, we can look and sound as impressive as we want to, but it's like a crashing cymbal. It's jarring and abrasive and does no one any good. From his hand we've received. And so we're free to give, free to serve, and extend generosity to others as we have been loved. So let's love this week. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, Love one another. That's what we're called to. We drink in his love. Bask in it. Delight in it. Celebrate it. In your own life, in your own heart, I want to encourage you, more than you do anything else, daily, remind yourself of the love of God towards you and what that means that you haven't been treated as your sins deserve. But Jesus has opened a way for you to come into relationship with God, for your, your sins to be forgiven, conscience cleansed, for you to have life and life eternal with him. Delight in it, drink it in. But as you do, pour it out to others. You've received in order that you might give out of a place of security and not feeling that you have to do anything to impress anyone or earn approval in any way. But knowing that you're loved and you have nothing to prove. I want to pray for us in that vein and we're going to come back and sing and then share communion together. But I want you to know I want you to know today that God is for you. And that you might feel that your life is lived wanting to be approved of by others. And you, you just know, like, you, you live <laughs> on that cycle looking for security, looking for comfort. It's like everything you do in one way or another is like, did, did they approve? Am I, have I got security? You can know it. his love that's the hope we have it's the hope that you can have you have nothing to prove fully secure not based on what you've done not your works, your accomplishments your achievements, not how good you've managed to be not how moral you are but because of what he has done for you 
Jesus' perfect record given to you as though it were your own. I want to pray for us now, and then we're going to come back to sing.